I am really, really excited to launch off this second episode with an actual guest, Alf. <laughs> <laughs> so we had our first episode, which, which was basically just Al and I. That's right. Getting the show not, not basically. It was entirely it was, just. It was entirely just, just relaunching I. the show. <laughs> and we spoke to Dylan Mahmoudi recently right. about advertising and smartphones. Right. And I'm excited to stay in the, the, the realm of privacy today, particularly in neurotech. We have the absolute pleasure of talking to Dr. Brenda McPhail, who is the Privacy Surveillance and Tech Project Director at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Someone who I've known for about a year, personally, and someone that I've admired for many more as an expert in civil society. Brenda, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's good to be fun. Yeah, thank you. Um, when I reached out to you not all that long ago, <laughs> and I told you that I was interested in talking to you about things that you have found confusing or perhaps things that you have found in civil society, perhaps in emerging tech as confusing, you'd said neurotech to me. Now, I'll be honest, uh, as a former postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Center, I've seen this come up before. I, I'm not going to lie to you. I have no idea what neurotech actually is. Oh, this will be if a fun I, ride I, I was just going to say, I'm, I'm going to be happy thinking on my feet here because you guys are you guys are in the future for me. But but truthfully, I don't have much more of an understanding either. So, well, well let, me, let me open up... Uh, uh, let me open up then with just a very topical question for anybody that's like me and saying, obviously I can derive through the term neurotechnology what it is. <laughs> Brenda, help me understand when you hear neurotechnology or you are at a conference and you say neurotechnology, what are you talking about with other people? What is that? Good question. Exactly the question I had the first time I was asked <laughs> yeah. to talk about this uh, to a public audience. I was like, hmm, okay. First I'll figure out what that is. Then I'll decide whether I can talk about it. You're listening to What's That Noise? The podcast that pursues matters of confusion, however and whatever that means. You're right that you can kind of figure out what it is from the word itself. It's a technology that is designed to provide either greater insight into the brain or nervous system activity, or that affects brain or nervous system activity. So it's technology designed to interact with or integrate with brain activity. Uh, now, obviously in the infancy, what I've seen to a degree is uh, there's like a meditation thing that you can get that, you know, your eyes kind of help and, and that interact. Is that kind of what we're talking about is, is how our, our physical body and our brain work together? Is that kind of along the lines? Am I anywhere in the right realm? You're exactly in the right realm. That's Nailed one it. of the early commercial products that are built on this idea of how can we use technology um, to interact with our brain in ways that help us, that might make our life better. So that headband is about achieving zen, achieving focus and yeah. calm. Um, and it's been around for a few years. So that's the other interesting thing about neurotechnology is even though it sounds like science fiction and we don't hear much conversation about it in, you know, in the public realm, um, it's not science fiction. It's increasingly present. Um, some uh, proponents say that it's likely to become ubiquitous. And there are three really important areas where it's going to probably become prominent. One of them is medical, one of them is military, and the other one is marketing. Right, yeah. <laughs> okay, and, and all, of us, all of us know 
that the one that we're all going to be talking to you about with privacy invasion and everything mostly is going to be on the commercial level, right? The marketing level. Would I be right in assuming that that would be kind of as soon as you hear, all right, we're going to be going into people's brains and fiddling around with people's brains and there's a market for it. That's where you step in and say, there's a lot of privacy issues here as well. So absolutely and definitely, there's a ton of privacy issues. When you talk about how can we use technology to allow people who want to sell us something to manipulate the way we think in order to make us favorably disposed to their product. Definitely lots of concerns there. Um, But this is actually one of those interesting texts where, um, from a human rights perspective, which is, you know, the other part of my job, civil Mm -hmm. liberties and human rights, uh, I'm very concerned about military applications, particularly because uh, they do tend to trickle down into that commercial sphere. And they do tend to, that the experimentation in that realm tends to happen in ways that are secret, that oh. are not really visible to members of the public. Um, and that consequently don't get sort of viewed from a socio-technical lens that would say uh, ethics, uh, rights, <laughs> uh, privacy, or uh, even something like cognitive integrity and the right yes. to control our own minds. Uh, so the military sphere is one that um, is of deep concern from a rights perspective. And then the medical, re- the medical realm also, uh, because proponents of this technology, it's all about the medical applications. It's about how can we develop either external or Um, external technologies, things that sit on your head or on your body, or internal technologies, things that get implanted within you in order to help people who suffer from terrible and chronic, chronic, that's a word. (laughs) Just not the right word in this context. Somebody had to make up neurotech, so we can do that too. (laughs) So how how can we use technology, particularly technology that maybe is embedded in our bodies and integrates with our nervous system uh, to help make up for chronic losses. So there's really interesting research going on. Can we help blind people see using a version of this technology? Can we help people who have lost the use of their limbs regain some capacity for that use or develop artificial limbs that can be controlled through the body and through these implants? Um, Can we help people who have Alzheimer's or dementia recover brain activity, recover the use, you know, recover the use of their memory? using this kind of technology. So these are all amazing possible applications for this technology. All of them involve messing around with the integrity of your body and potentially changing the way that your brain works. So there's massive liberty issues uh, connected to that. There are so many places, so many different ways that I, I was ju- I was just going to say, you just laid a bomb on us there with, with some of that there, Brenda. Um, let me, hmm. I have a good friend named Carmi Levy. And Carmi Levy is probably one of the best tech analysts in, in the country. And, and I think Tommy would, would agree with me on that. Um, and Carmi, I, I remember saying to me at one point saying, there is no such thing as a just bad technology. It's how we use it, right? That the technology can either be good or it can be bad. And I'm hearing all the possibilities, Brenda, that you're you're bringing in. 
um, all of these wonderful possibilities of, of, I mean, quite literally being able to say, we can teach a blind man to see, we can teach a, a, a woman who's uh, suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's. At what point do we start weighing the, weighing the good and the bad to say, okay, well, there's the possibility of bad, but look at the possibility of good. When do we start weighing all of that? Or has it already begun and we're just oblivious to it? Right now. <laughs> we start weighing it right now. We gotcha. are so bad as a society at looking forward to think through the benefits and challenges and harms of new technology. Um, and, you know, one word is enough to prove that, and it's internet. Right? <laughs> right. I mean, we, yes. <laughs> when you think about the beginning of the internet, we all, we were all, those of us who, you know, love and embrace technology and are kind of, you know, a little bit geeky and love the gadgets and, right. and see the, see the potential. And I count myself among those people, despite the fact that I spend a lot of time critiquing technologies. Right. I, I mean, I do it because I love it. I love them. Right. Um, I believe we could make them better and that we could make them work for us, not against us. Uh, but you know, when, when the internet started, we, it was all about democratizing um, information, the use of information, about connecting people globally, about opening up new communities for productive conversations that could revolutionize, you know, spread democracy and increase the spread of knowledge in the world. And what have we got? We've got Facebook. We've got filter bubbles. We've got, you know, now the ongoing conversations in the world about 10 years too late about whether or not um, platforms require regulation, whether or not it's possible to sort of mitigate the worst impulses of humanity that have been shown to manifest when they can say anything with virtual anonymity um, mm -hmm. and have it reverberate across the world. Uh, so... When it comes to, and that's in some ways a, a relatively minor kind of technology, a minor set of concerns. In other ways, it's not, of course, because it has the potential to do things like upend democracy right. and democratic participation. Uh, but it doesn't quite rise to the level of fundamentally changing humanity or society or culture if we get the ability to affect what happens in people's minds, to change, manipulate, control, or enhance or improve behavior and screw it up. If we fail to think through yeah. how that could go wrong mm -hmm. and try to put some guardrails in place to make sure that we don't. Brenda, I, wow. My, I have to, I have to say, I'm gonna just say this right now. In, in the few years that I've been podcasting, I've never found myself with so many questions I know. It's and hard, so much right? confusion yeah. than I am right now. And it's not that you're no, not making this abundantly clear. I think you're laying out the landscape, the terrain, so to speak, of emerging social, ethical, human rights, privacy-related issues in, in three relatively distinct but definitely overlapping areas, military, marketing, and medical. Would neurotech be safer if there was no feedback loop connected to it? And this is what I mean. What's the difference between a neurotechnology from a human rights perspective that just listens to our brain as opposed to one that gives information back to it? Mm. 
Would that would that clear some of the air and some of the confusion for analysts such as yourself watching these industries move towards neurotech? Um, so the short answer is no. And for the long answer, I'll give an example. Um, so as a someone who works for a civil liberties organization, uh, we do a lot of legal advocacy. One of the areas where this technology, which actually doesn't fall neatly into my, you know, trio of <laughs> medical, military, and marketing, uh, is in the criminal justice realm. Oh. Uh, and in the criminal justice realm, there's all kinds of chatter about how these kinds of technologies could help us figure out who's really a bad guy or girl, mm. who's um, likely to reoffend, who's likely to be rehabilitatable. Um, would we ever get, and I'm sorry to interrupt, Brenda, but would it get to a point where if the military and medical uh, people got together, would that be a possible, for lack of a better term, good way of using this this neurotechnology is being able to say, you know, we, we ended up getting this horrendous, awful villain and putting this little chip in his brain, and now they are the best Buddhist monk in the face of the planet or something like that. Like, is, is that a realistic possibility for this technology? Rather than just saying this person is likely to reoffend, we're we're able to rehabilitate with this technology. Well, that there are people who are talking about that as a dream, and there are people who see that <laughs> as profoundly ethically suspect. Ah. Um, what would, what would give us the right to decide who is unsalvageable through working on themselves with more conventional means um, and who is so profoundly damaged as a human being and such a profound risk to society that we get to decide to rewire their brain to make them behave in a way that as a society we think is better. Um, keeping in mind, we're all sitting here in Canada, in one of the safest democracies in the world, with a government who messes up regularly, but overall is held to account through democratic process, um, and who, you know, eh, generously six times out of ten seems to have social benefit or public interest in mind when they act, even if we don't all agree on, you know, what's in the public interest or what the steps are that we should take to achieve it. Uh, but the idea that societies get to decide who is broken and needs to be fixed through intervening in the way that they think and how their brain works raises just a whole plethora of issues that vary across political jurisdictions, that vary across um, where you sit in terms of your ethics about what it means to be human, about what it means to have a soul, about what it means to have um, bodily integrity, what it means to have moral autonomy, what it means to have freedom of thought, and then where the lines are in society between all of those values um, and public safety and public good and rule of law. Uh, it's 
it's confusing and it's hard. I don't have the answers. I've just got millions more questions. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can see where the confusion part comes in. And Brenda, I'm going to do something and I'm going to duck the punch that's coming from Tommy here. Can I play devil's advocate for just oh. one second here? <laughs> if I say no, will you stop? No, I won't actually. Yeah, yeah, sorry. No, I have a choice. Okay. Instead of can I, uh, Brenda, what I will say is I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a second. Couldn't you make the argument that we're already doing that in that we have, for example, in our prisons systems that uh, uh, people work with psychologists and sociologists and counselors and uh, we give uh, uh, education to prisoners in, in, in a jail? And I know that this is just one example of all of the different neurotechnologies that we could give, but it just seems that that, that, that one to me is the most interesting right now. Um couldn't we make the argument that we are already manipulating people through medication, through different programs, through different exposures to social programs, things along those lines, that this would maybe just be a natural Ugh. adding to, a natural adding to those, those <laughs> don't punch me, Tommy, uh, a natural adding to the things that we're already doing? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a... It's a great question. See, it's a great question, Tommy. Don't validate him. <laughs> I'm just going to lean back from this one and let you two talk for like the next half minute. <laughs> uh, so we do. We do do that. None of those things that you described are necessarily uncontroversial or were uncontroversial when we started doing them. Mm. None of them are demonstrably, consistently that might be overbroad. Many of them are not demonstrably um, and consistently effective. Right. There's still, you know, huge debate as to the efficacy of many of these things and the uh, morality of some of them, although some of them have been around long enough that they have become how we do things, the way that it is. Um, and these neurotechnologies, we have this moment, this policy window, if you like, where they're not the way we do things where they're new and different um, in a mm. way that allows us to interrogate those questions that we no longer interrogate about the other kinds of um, interventions that mm. you were describing. Because there's a researcher named Volpe who said something that I think is worth at least thinking about, which is um, the skull should be designated as a domain of absolute privacy. No one should be able to probe an individual's mind against their will. We shouldn't be able to permit it with a court order. We shouldn't permit it for military or national security. We should forego the use of that technology under coercive circumstances, even though using it may serve the public good. We might not all agree with him, but I think that's an interesting phrase. Uh, that first sentence, I think, gives us a place to start thinking about this in a way that's a little bit different, although not entirely different, uh, from some of the scenarios you laid out, which is um, what's inside... Once you cross the barrier of our skull, what do we deserve? What level of privacy do we deserve as humans? What level of bodily and mental integrity do we deserve as humans? Um, and what are the, not just the individual, but the community social consequences of shattering that barrier in a way that up to now we haven't been able to do, even though we've tried. Um, again, it's a, I think it's a really important question that we should be thinking through. It's become clearer to me that 
you have a, a very strong understanding of of the emerging realms of problem, the emerging realms of disaster <laughs> around neurotech, Brenda. And I, I really value that given how new the discourse is, relatively speaking. I have to ask, where else is there confusion around neurotech? Where do you have particular confusion? Or is, is civil society still wrestling with particular confusions that, w- that we could explore further here? Because as I mentioned, the, the, the defense against these sort of things, the arguments that reject neurotech's invasion into what matters uh, lie beyond the skull, so to speak, is clear to me. But there seems to be so much uncertainty and ambiguity around where the tech comes from, why people would want to do it, what the mutual benefits are between the different sectors that have a stake in it. Could you tell us a little bit more about emerging confusions or things that you've been dealing with more directly as a professional? When it comes to this topic, mostly what I have are are confusions, (laughs) to be absolutely (laughs) honest. It's not confusing why people want to try it, why people want to experiment, why people want to build these technologies and see if, if they work. And we talked about that at the beginning. It's because there are some amazing potential medical applications right. that could make people's lives better, that could allow people who can't communicate to break out of their cone of silence and, and inter- engage with the world, that could allow people who can't move to um, become ambulatory again. Mm-hmm. So there's so there's no confusion around why in a me- in a medical field you'd want to do this. Um, I think the confusion uh, comes from why we'd want to let it go beyond there. Fascinating. So here, I mean, it would be fun to talk about marketing. Oh, why we should talk about yes, marketing? Why, let's do it. Yes. <laughs> a profound confusion for me is why we would think as a society. Uh, that it's a good idea to let marketers dig further into our brains. Why would we think as a society that the goal of selling something for profit is so lofty, so predominant, that we should let an unregulated, largely unregulated (laughs) industry experiment with technologies that have the capacity to literally change our minds. Um, to me, I, I, that is profoundly confusing. Um, I guess that makes me, you know, a bad subject of capitalism. And, 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 but but, but we're, we're Tommy, we're Tommy and I often, I, I don't want to say butt heads. Usually Tommy and I are pretty friendly with each other. Um, but, but Tommy obviously has so much more scholarly background on so many of these ethical topics, whereas I, I don't have the scholarly back, background, I look at it as saying, you know what would be cool, Brenda? If I didn't have to worry about what I wanted and advertisements came to me and I didn't have to worry about where to get something because it was already implanted in my brain. Like I look at it from that way and granted you say, well, that's unregulated and everything like that. But when it comes down to it, and this is maybe being, again, maybe a little bit no, a lot bit naive, <laughs> is when it when it comes down to it, I look and I say, whether I know it or not, I have a want that's been created. Well, again, that might be a marketer that's manipulated my brain and has created this want, but then I have that want given to me. 
And then I'm like, all right, I bought that thing. It's it's great. So I look at it, and I'm not saying that that's good. Please don't misunderstand me as saying that that's good. But it may may help with your confusion with why why a marketing person would be allowed to do that is because we're all, in, unless we've been meditating a lot and been able to get rid of our ego and our wants, we all have wants. This time they're dictated to us and given all in the same same thread. I'm now a happier individual. It might put therapists out of business. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. I mean, that, everything I said just that made. framing causes <laughs> me to that framing causes me to quest causes me to be deeply confused. Yeah. I guess yeah. about the nature of um with within that vision, what humanity would ultimately look like. Yes, I if agree. If that's the if that's the way that we think, if we, and you know, lots of people, we have the precursor of this in the modern internet and, you know, surveillance capitalism and information brokers who advertise that they can give 200,000 individual data points about 4 billion individuals. And all you have to do is pay 50 cents a person to get access <laughs> to that, to the granular <laughs> insights that can be revealed if you run those data points through an AI that's effective. Um, in order to determine what you want. I mean, lots of people, one of the questions, we get public inquiries sometimes, and one of the questions I get as the director of the Privacy Technology and Surveillance Program is, is Facebook listening to me? Because, you know, mm -hmm. I said this thing, on my, I said this thing, and all of a sudden all my ads are about the thing that I was talking right. about. Right, exactly. And Facebook themselves say, no, we're not listening to you because we've got so much information about what you like and what you don't like and what you're doing at any given moment as you move through your online world that we don't need to listen. We can make these inferences just from what we know about you without hearing it come out of your mouth. Right. Um, so we, we've got that model. Um, and we could talk about, you know, the benefits that that's granted to people and the harms that it's done. And some of those benefits are about making people less um, likely to have to think for themselves. And we can mm -hmm. talk about that as being a, a positive thing in this age of information overload, where sure. we just have to, don't have the bandwidth to deal with all of the crap in our lives. And having somebody who wants to make a little tiny slice of it easier can feel like a gift. Right. Or we can talk about it in terms of what are the... What are the impacts, not just on us as individuals, but on us as a society when you've got major commercial actors who think they know you well enough based on your information to smooth the path of your life rather than allowing you to make, to have enough information to understand that there are different choices on either side of that path. And that's particularly, that's, that's less relevant maybe for me as a middle-aged white woman Mm -hmm. And more relevant for people who are younger and discovering themselves, for people who are not white, for people who are disabled, for people who are essentially outliers to the sort of mainstream mass that a lot of uh, a lot of the analysis and inferences are targeted towards. So, I mean, it's, it's old now, but there are all kinds of stories about when Facebook first started figuring out how to target ads. People like me might get an ad for Alexis, although they'd be deluded because I work for a civil society organization and have no money. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm at a stage in my I life where they might that. think 
that I right. have money. Um, <laughs> and, you know, if someone, a man who is my age but black, might get an ad for a bail bonds, mm. uh, um, you know, service. Uh, there's all kinds of interesting sort of empirical research that was done around the way that assumptions about people and who they are um, because of the categories or groups that they fall into and about stigmatizing discriminatory misapprehensions about those groups resulted in a limitation of, a sen- of, of services, if you look at it narrowly, or products, uh, but also potentially life choices mm-hmm. um, because somebody thinks that they know you. So then mm-hmm. let's take the next step. What if, what if they really do, assuming the technology works perfectly, and it doesn't, frankly. So we're right. still at the early stages of this neurotech. There's all kinds of claims and promises being made for it uh, that when you dig deeper, worked once in a sheep. Uh, but, that's, but because... You know, we're talking as though it works. Let's, let's continue on like that. What? How much worse would it be to live in a world where someone who has a vested interest in selling you something can truly fundamentally understand the way that you think, can understand your deepest desires, can understand the ebb and flow of the relationships in your life, can understand sort of the the mental core of your being and uses that information to manipulate your behavior to buy the thing. Is that a world that we even want to contemplate living in? Is that a step too far? I'm going to say yes. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's not where I want to live. I'm I'm, uh, shaking sitting beside you on that limb, Brenda. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of What's That Noise? If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have a topic or guest in mind, don't hesitate to get in touch at WTNCast. Stay tuned for bi-weekly episodes and until next time... Keep listening to the noise.